Hey everybody, and welcome to the Whole Whale Podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies to make a difference in the social impact world. My name is Carisha Martinez, one of the Senior Marketing Associates here at Whole Whale, and your host for today's show. Thanks for listening. I'm really excited for our podcast today. Today on the pad, we have Sam Van Kuchen, who is the founder and CEO of Golden. Um, this is a really popular app for volunteering, the most popular app for volunteering, and also the most award-winning app for volunteer programs. Um, so thanks for coming on the show, Sam. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about volunteering, um, which I think is something that has been kind of in flux, especially as it relates to the pandemic um, and being in person. So can you talk a little bit more about kind of the trends that you've seen in volunteering and how the pandemic and being in quarantine and kind of those safety precautions have changed the landscape? Absolutely. I think it helps to define what we mean when we say volunteering. When I think of it and when our team thinks of it, we think of it in the broadest possible way, meaning how can you be of service to somebody else and what can you do to improve the lives of others or to understand and improve the world around you a little bit more. And so in order to do that, there are a lot of different forms of service. You can do things in person, like you were talking about, more popular pre-pandemic. You can do things virtually. You can engage in mentoring and peer-to-peer support, mutual aid support, And you can do projects on your own, sit on boards. There are a lot of different kinds of things. And our goal is to help everybody experience what we call your golden moments through service, whatever it is that you think you enjoy most in the world, or if you could do for your whole life, you know, you would do things like that. And regardless of what situation we're in, whether we're in a pandemic or not, all of us have an interest in, uh, getting more out of our lives, living a more fulfilling and enrich, enriching lifestyle. It's just that there's certain circumstances now that I think were foreign to, to most of us. Mm-hmm. So what's changed, some of it's obvious. In the beginning of the pandemic, there was kind of a bifurcation between lifestyle organizers and mission-critical organizers. In other words, plenty of people who ran programs with some kind of volunteer component whose operations may or may not make sense in the context of a pandemic. And then there are all kinds of other programs in the nonprofit nonprofit sector and beyond. So these programs can also exist in corporate environment, uh, clinical healthcare environment, higher education, K through 12 education, government, et cetera. And many of these programs are absolutely critical for well-being for our neighbors and those around us. Mm-hmm. And so the challenge of the pandemic was to understand how to evolve the ways that these programs were delivered in the context or in the format that is most useful for, for those in need right now. And that's a combination of digital transformation and program transformation. Some of those methods I think for lack of a better term are are obvious, you know, being able to do things virtually have video calls instead of in-person trainings, being able to create projects that can be done on your own time instead of in a set format and a set place. But then even more than that, it's about understanding how the needs are different right now and how to meet those needs. And for me, I think this year, last year, 2020 was a year that I would categorized by saying it was quite tender. 
I think all of us became a lot more in touch with what it means to be vulnerable, you know, physically, but also it was a year of a lot of um, unsettling racially charged experiences as well in a way that makes everybody of every background much more aware of, of what it can mean to be vulnerable in a different way. And when you think about technology, especially this year, 2021, there's a big movement around humanizing technology and saying, now that we've created a whole bunch of capabilities that in theory make life better, how do we make sure that spiritually the tech industry and those who partner with the tech industry are focused on improving quality of life for human beings instead of just extracting data and monetizing that data on human beings? And there's no greater opportunity than a pandemic to show what technology can do for those whose needs were unmet otherwise. And when we look at past experiences that we've had with very challenging times, for example, in disasters, there's some things that we've learned by working with a lot of the best organizers in the world on disaster preparation, relief, and recovery that translate to pandemics. It's just that with the pandemic, the window for uh, relief is extended and in fact not defined. So by preparation, relief, and recovery, we basically just mean before, during, and after. And in a, in a pandemic, we have a very long during stage where the work needs to get done. So if you think about a hurricane like Hurricane Katrina, or if you think about a wildfire like Paradise Fires in California a few years ago, what we remember about these events is not just the force of first responders who are able to go out and hopefully, you know, recover and um, make improve the situation for those who are affected. But we think of those on the fringes who took a long time to get the help that they needed. So for example, in paradise, that was a relatively rural community that didn't have the same kind of infrastructure that you might have in a big city for, for taking care of fires. So a big challenge there is how do you account for everybody? How do you understand what needs people have? How do you get them those needs regardless of whether they're coming from a designated source or just the first neighbor who's around. And adopting a strategy for a very robust organization that includes bottom-up organizing is not always an easy transformation to make, but it was the critical transformation here. So in other words, you need to run your programs the way you've always run them, but also you need to augment the way you're running those programs with tools that empower people on the ground level to take care of each other or to set up beacons for each other and, and get there as quickly as possible. And what's interesting is this moment in time pulled together a lot of the most robust and professional organizers, like first response organizations and governments, as well as totally grassroots communities that had some existing or started to spin up mutual aid networks. And mutual aid's been this interesting theme that's existed for hundreds of years, very well academically understood, communities that can be self-sustaining through various forms of bartering, you know, skills, labor, time, et cetera. And in the early stages of coronavirus uh, response, mutual aid turned out to be a very productive tool. And then it started to move a lot closer to the formal organizers leveraging it in certain situations. So for example, one project we worked on that was totally unconventional that matched that kind of relationship was we're working with a state government 
and the state government used their 411 operators to, formally or informally, they started receiving a lot of coronavirus uh, outreach, particularly the kind of outreach, and all of us remember these early days where somebody may say, hey, somebody in my family is is literally dying right now. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to take them. I don't know what kind of options exist for their treatment. And in a lot of cities and other communities, all the hospitals were full. And so it's not like there are a lot of places you could take people. And so these 411 uh, operators started to try and triage guidance for, uh, for those who called in with these needs. And eventually they ended up using mutual aid tools to help the 411 operators do internal networking with each other to help with peer counseling around stress that comes with handling day in, day out, hundreds of very personal stories about coronavirus. And so, yes, there's like the very traditional forms of recovery, but this has been a one-of-a-kind moment in all of our lifetimes for how people choose to respond and the damages are very difficult to measure. They're both you know, physical and psychological. And so it's just important when you're thinking about service and volunteering to try and understand where all the touch points are. They can be very informal. It can be checking on neighbors uh, or it can be very formal. It can be getting PPE to people who need it or dealing with discharge patients or getting folks to the hospital who really need treatment. So we're just, we're really quite appreciative that we were around and working in this kind of moment because it's a kind of moment that tests everybody's capabilities and open our eyes to what human, humanity is capable of doing to take care of each other. And we've also been thrilled to see in general engagement rates going up, looking across our platform and I don't know, I can't speak to other communities that manage labor the way we do and what kind of trends they're experiencing. But to see that many have picked up the tools and run with them and have been able to deliver the care that their communities need is a very uplifting thought to consider. And it's time to feed the whales with a quick ad about Whole Whale University. This is our best online content packaged in courses. We're talking SEO, content marketing, Google ad grants, cybersecurity, and tons of webinars and other templates for you to use. You can buy them individually or as an annual subscription. Uh, We really put our best work in here. And if you're interested in the topics in this podcast that we tend to cover, we go a mile deep with these courses. That's wholewhale.com slash university. Yeah, you said so many great things that I want to touch on. (laughs) Um, But one, starting from more um, in the beginning, when you were talking about vulnerability, right, I think that's a really interesting topic that um, relates to fun or relates to volunteering that I don't think a lot of people think about. You think more about storytelling, telling other people's stories, but I think vulnerability requires a little bit more of empathy as it relates to getting people to kind of care and volunteer and really give their time and energy to helping others, right? So especially as it relates to the pandemic, this is kind of a, a, a communal trauma that we're all going through. And I think that is what really allows more of that empathetic and vulnerable state that a lot of people um, are experiencing and could also relate to your engagement rates going up. Um, I know that there have been lots of fluctuations as it relates to um, the pandemic and uh, nonprofits. So like we see a lot of donations and fundraising going up. um, And I guess if people can't give their money, they can give their time, uh, which would also kind of seem 
uh, a more cause and effect side of volunteering going up as well. Absolutely. I think empathy is so essential to the whole experience. Right. In the world of professional fundraising and organizing, there's always this debate about pushing and pulling. You know, should you be distributing and broadcasting communications to people that they may or may not be ready to receive? Or should you open your doors to inbound and organic interest in your operation? And of course, it's got to be a little bit of both. But what's so inspiring to, to us about volunteering and service is that it's simply putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and prioritizing their needs. It's not, it doesn't have to be charity in the traditional sense. It doesn't have to be tithing. It doesn't have to be taking from your pocket and giving to somebody else because you feel like their situation is different and that's what they need. It can be all those things. But instead, we think of it as being very exciting because being human is something all of us have in common. Mm -hmm. Having the opportunity to see things from a different perspective when you prioritize somebody else's needs and you understand the way that they're approaching life totally challenges your own assumptions about what's most important, where you spend your time and effort, what you'd like to see change. And it gives all of us a little bit more conviction, sense of purpose, agency, et cetera. And those things, of course, translate to much better donors. That's the other part of the reason why all of us are interested in volunteering. If you look at patterns of donors, they're changing a lot generationally. The greatest generation, baby boomers, those who used to give big endowments and large you know, lifelong gifts after having a huge productive career in business and then turning into philanthropists. That's not the way Gen X, millennials, or Gen Z think or, or value what they can contribute to others. So instead, if you're very interested in building a robust donor pipeline, it makes a lot of sense to broaden all the points of engagement, all the different touch points, ways you can involve stakeholders, and then build a relationship with context and social proof around the work that you're doing so that everybody is encouraged to give to their full potential. They're not separate disciplines, volunteering and fundraising. And yet, historically, many of us who have professional backgrounds in nonprofit are so used to those being separate disciplines and separate teams. And instead, we need to look at the entire life cycle and make sure that we're finding the right touch points to continue to engage people regardless of the current situation, but considering the needs of the current situation. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. You think about time versus money, right? And why are they so separate when a lot of the times (laughs) time equals money, if we're kind of going back to that uh, more antiquated quote. Um, But there's another thing that you touched on, which is mutual aid, which I have found, at least in my own kind of personal circles, has been on the rise more and more. Um, And kind of even a wave of diverging away from like bigger, like established organizations and nonprofits and turning to mutual aid. And I'm interested how um, maybe in your own experience, you kind of see the two push and pull or if they're kind of more together and can live a little bit more harmoniously. Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of both. And I'll explain why the best way I know, which is from personal experience. Mm -hmm. So as a social entrepreneur, a career long social entrepreneur, I've always been interested in impact at the greatest possible scale. So what infrastructure can we provide that allow us to reach our potential as human beings? And for me, a lot of that interest in the last 20 years has had to do with technology because technology can bring down the costs and increase the access for so many 
so many different people and markets. And when you're in the frame of mind of building a technology enterprise, you're always thinking about scale and getting buy-in from larger players. And to get buy-in from larger players, historically, you needed a lot of credibility. So you needed to provide an environment with a lot of trust and a lot of understanding about the work that's getting done. For better or for worse, a lot of those big players have always been interested in working with name brand partners or partners who have a 501c3 status. And there are a lot of advantages to doing that because their fiscal requirements, their managerial requirements, their community requirements. But it also is exclusionary in the sense that some of the most pressing needs or some of the populations who are most vulnerable in the context of today's conversation, they don't always have access to be such a formal organizer. And it can take years to put a nonprofit together. So I think if you're generally interested in working at scale, you do need to have both. I think we're really quite excited to announce a global partnership with Charity Navigator that will give the folks who are doing either planned giving or very rigorous giving all the information they need to understand who to volunteer with and, and who to give donations to. But we're also quite excited to enable anybody who's a community-based organizer or any group of people to have the world's best tools to be able to safely get in touch with each other, account for each other, figure out where projects stand, get them done, understand the impact that's had, that all the help has had on your local community. And in the past, these, these relationships have been so informal and they've been done based on basically somebody who's like, the medicine person for the community, you know, making a bunch of phone calls or religious groups making a bunch of these phone calls. In the earliest days of our research, two communities that come to mind that we did a lot of testing with, actually three, just for example, one were religious groups where the pastor, the priest, the rabbi, et cetera, understood all the needs of the congregation and would one-off kind of put people in touch who they knew had capacity to help each other. Another in, in your neighborhood in, in Brooklyn um, is Hatsala, which is, you know, an emergency service for the Hasidic community that used to make sure that emergency transportation could happen, understanding the cultural norms of, of that community. And again, those kinds of coordination with ambulances and stuff are happening over WhatsApp and cell phones years ago. And then also we looked at much more formal communities like hospitals that had discharged patients with needs. Again, those hospitals had to decide whether they want to send nurses to people's houses, whether they want to use a third-party staffing firm, whether they want to use volunteers. And in a world where you're discharging tons of people from the hospital, or you can't even admit people into the hospital because they have COVID and you don't have capacity to, to serve them. You need to figure out how to give those people the resources they need, and it's going to come from a broader, more diverse population of supporters than you're used to working with. And there's just no way to do that unless you can embrace how these channels would work to roll up bottoms-up support. And that's such a cool story for us about what it's like to live through 2020 and 2021. And hopefully these are skills and muscle memory that'll stick with everybody for years to come. Yeah, definitely. And I love that kind of narrative, right? Because you often think about maybe like these bigger nonprofits that are maybe nationwide trying to do work in communities are kind of 
I don't know, even in a way kind of pushing out more of these mutual aid um, organizations or organizers who are really in their communities, know their community. So you kind of think of it as like a fight, right? Like one can't exist with the other around, but I love the idea of kind of having both of them, right? Like there's more than enough work to be done in all of our communities that there's no need for one or the other. Absolutely. They don't need to be in, in conflict. That's probably one of the bigger macro themes that would be great to discuss today too, if you're interested is how can we really make the social sector more collaborative for better or for worse? We talk about this all the time, using collaboration tools, having partnerships, having cross-sector partnerships, but there's also a strong legacy interest in protecting the market that you serve for lack of a better term or the community that you serve. And I think we need to move past that because we need to start treating needs like they're live inventory, not just theoretical. We need to be able to understand where they stand in the process and service them and make sure that we don't leave stones unturned. And in order to get to a phase like that, all of us need to understand that our communities and systems need to be interoperable. You can't just have your information in a silo. And if we're thinking about modern protocols for managing personal information, an easiest shorthand way I can think of to do that is to look at laws and regulations. In particular in the US, in California, there's CCPA, which is the California Protection Act for Personal Information. And then in Europe, of course, an early mover with GDPR, sort of the standard for the European continent about personal information. If you're the kind of organizer who's very concerned about the sensitivity and privacy of your information, then just make sure that you have systems that can comply with those laws that ultimately give the permission to the person whose information it is to choose how to share it. Because in many cases, that person's gonna see a lot of value by having you share their information with somebody else in a trusted way. And we need to, as a, you know, as a social impact community, as the social sector broadly, not just the nonprofit sector, but everybody who collaborates with the nonprofit sector, we need to think about what we do to process experiences, way of life, information for our stakeholders, and how we can integrate that process with other people's process so that for the end user, for the end stakeholder, for the local community member, they get everything that they deserve in terms of having their needs met or being able to help other people with their needs. And that kind of mentality comes from mutual aid, but there's no reason why it shouldn't exhibit itself in a government context or in a enterprise scale nonprofit context. Right. I'm, I'm curious if you have any like off the bat ideas about how that could work. Like in an ideal world, where do you see the two like volunteering from bigger organizations and mutual aid coming together? That's a really excellent question. I, I suggested a few from, from prior experience this year, but we would encourage anybody who's thinking at, for example, either of these two scales to start thinking about how mutual aid can benefit their organization. One is a concrete community-based scale. If you know that your chapter or your sister chapters in a certain region are serving very specific communities, then it may make sense to see if it makes sense to create a private environment where those individuals can interact in a safe way to maybe 
get the sort of extra needs that you didn't know about, or maybe they were trying to go to other services to get, or they didn't know other services existed to support. But creating an environment of trust that goes above and beyond what you do directly to support your stakeholders, and instead demonstrates to them that you're interested in their well-being and you want to help them solve whatever needs they have. I'll give you one example of that. We work with several universities. There's a major research university that canceled classes this year, just like many others did. And they found that there were a bunch of people on campus that all of a sudden had different kinds of needs than they usually have. For example, international students that were here on visas and they didn't know whether they could or should go back. For example, people who are supporting families as students who all of a sudden their financial picture is changing significantly. And this university created a mutual aid environment administered by their emergency services department to be able to create a place where those who had needs that weren't being met by the infrastructure that existed in the university to at least vocalize what those needs are and see if there's anybody around who can help with them. Most often, these needs aren't super complicated. It's things like food, childcare, access to PPE, stuff like that. That's one way of thinking of it. Another way of thinking of it is at the network scale. So let's say that you're a global NGO or you are a national scale nonprofit or you're a membership organization that has local chapters and communities. I think it's important to think what value can the headquarters provide for local chapters? This is like a very classic challenge. You know, are you all part of the mothership or are you just affiliates and, you know, highly federated organization? And when the top of the hierarchy announces that they're actually interested in providing infrastructure that allows in a controlled and safe way for the local organizer to do more, you actually get more trust from the local organizer, more value from the local organizer in the mothership. And if you're in, this is really common in like fundraising organizations. So like big healthcare research charities that exist to kind of drive hundreds of millions or billions of dollars toward a certain type of medical research. Mm-hmm. Right now they're in kind of a tough position because usually they just do fundraisers you know, like a big race or, a you know, some kind of social media challenge or whatever. And those look different. They're, they're either not possible in the same way that they used to be possible, or they just look kind of tone deaf for the current situation. And so instead, if I were running an organization like that, and in fact, we partner with many like that, I would be thinking, gee, maybe we switch gears for a second and think, instead of just trying to raise money for a certain type of research, how about we think about how much more vulnerable the people we're doing this research to support are right now and what needs they have right now and how come we can't provide some immediate benefit to these people with these needs right now. And so many of the forward-thinking network scale organizers, again, are leveraging mutual aid as a safe, distributed, peer-to-peer tool to be able to help improve quality of life for their stakeholders. And the thought is, if you can do that and you can help people emerge from a relatively dark moment, then hopefully they'll have a lot more affinity for the organization thereafter. So we're really trying to help people step up to the plate using techniques that maybe aren't so traditional. 
Right. Yeah. I think those are lovely and great ideas and hopefully nonprofits who are listening um, can maybe implement one or two. But I think what I think you're actually really getting at too is kind of an inherent distrust from maybe like these bigger organizations to the people that they're helping. Right. And you kind of see this often with maybe the people who are in these fundraising departments or in these like more executive positions where um, the people that they're helping are a little bit more disenfranchised and they kind of, there's that empathetic disconnect, which I think brings us back to that vulnerability. Um, and I think mutual aid is a great way to, to bridge that gap between us, this big organization who has all of these resources and money and wants to help, um, but not necessarily share the best ways to do that in a way that's one, helpful, um, and two, respectful of the communities that they're helping. Absolutely. And something I think that might make sense to talk about too, because I know, Grisha, you have an interest in this. You can let me know if, if you think it's a little bit off topic. But when you're talking about engaging disenfranchised individuals and communities, I think it's very hard to talk strategically about that process without talking about diversity and inclusion and having a certain lens on diversity and inclusion. So if if we've got time to talk about that, I'd I'd be thrilled to do it. Sure, we can can touch on it a little bit because I think it's it's relevant, no? (laughs) I think it's totally relevant. Yeah. So I'll use a university context again. In universities, you have very diverse populations often. And those can be student populations, alumni populations, staff populations, or populations of ancillary entities or individuals or communities surrounding the geography where the university operates. And universities are very focused on advancement or development, very focused on fundraising. Mm -hmm. And they very often use very traditional methods to engage their donors. So they use lists that are often segmented by net worth or propensity to give. And as a result of that, the rates of engagement from a diversity and inclusion perspective of donors versus, say, people who volunteer with the university don't look the same. And in fact, the population from a DEI perspective of people who volunteer much more closely resembles the overall population of the universities, for example, alumni or students, than does the donor population. Mm-hmm. And to me, this is a really interesting example to look at to look at beyond education, to look at everywhere where development is practice. Because if those are the trends you're seeing, it's probably because you have some level of systematic exclusion. Probably not because members of certain populations don't have a propensity to get. And it's very hard to solve a disparity like that if you're solely focused on solving towards certain metrics. I think it's much easier to solve a problem like that if you broaden the different touch points and reduce the barriers to people being involved in your organization. And then you can engage people toward their full propensity to give. I'll give you another way of looking at that same problem. As a donor or a volunteer, without any other context, it doesn't always make sense to provide personal information about, for example, things like your racial identity, gender identity, age. Mm-hmm. you're often asked it for survey purposes, but you have to wonder as an individual, what value am I going to get out of this? This is somewhat sensitive. I, I don't totally understand what your context is for asking me this. What I think we should be asking as organizers is, can you tell me more about who you are? Can you tell me about your identity in a much more nuanced way? So we worked with 
a really stellar person named Dr. Jasmine Hill, who's lately been doing a lot of work with the Annenberg Foundation, Stanford PhD, who specializes in the field of diversity and inclusion and thinks really at the system scale about how to improve quality of life. And we went through our whole user profile and instead of just asking the basic DEI questions, we tried to build a version of the user profile that allowed people to tell you exactly who they are with a huge degree of sophistication, including questions like, what level of education did your parents attend? What language do you speak at home? The kinds of things we don't always think to ask, but really affect the ways that individuals are able to participate and engage or considerations you may have when thinking about ways to include them. And if you can start to understand really who your stakeholders are a lot better, then you can reduce the barriers and the friction to involving them. And that means for all facets of your organization, especially for development. I think from a development perspective, we have so much work to do to broaden the value proposition to folks of different audiences. And this is one way we can think of to approach that problem. And until we, we do address that problem of eliminating barriers, of reducing friction, of making everybody feel like they are valued for what makes them unique, mm -hmm. then it's very hard to understand how you would address populations with mutual aid or with any other tools. You have to start from the DEI lens at the beginning. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that because I totally agree with everything you just said, but I think you put it in a way that I might not have been able to explain. Um, but I think you're all the way right, right? You have to think about the people that you're serving, how they identify, how their, identifies, their identifiers affect their everyday life. Because everyday life is really when you're asking people for their time or their money or to help out. I mean, if you can't get to the core of that and understand exactly what they're going through and how they live their life, it's really hard for you to be able to go in and ask for these things. <laughs> totally. Totally. You have, you have to meet people halfway. You have to show that you're empathetic, mm -hmm. understanding, very interested in them having the experience you think they deserve, and then start to understand what factors influence somebody's ability to achieve their potential. Right. I think we talked about a lot of different things, but I think things that are all interconnected um, and that organizations should really be thinking about when they want volunteers or time or money or anything like that. But I always like to conclude these kinds of conversations with uh, ideas or things that organizations can do in the short term. So do you have maybe two to three tips that you think organizations can take tomorrow or next week or next month? Absolutely. Everybody, regardless of the circumstances, has something to offer new folks who aren't familiar with your organization. Find something open and public that you can share that allows people to engage with you with no friction. We call that volunteering, but that could be advocacy. It can be advisory work. It can be projects on your own. It can be social media. It really doesn't matter. Just find all the things and make yourself more welcoming. Second bit of advice I would say is if you feel like you're overwhelmed and you've got a lot of work to do, do what every productive person does and write a list. You got to itemize what those things are and then turn those things into inventory. Treat them as, for example, you're having a garage sale and just get all the things out on the floor, take pictures of them, whatever, just get them out there in a place where people can discover them because you never know what people are going to be interested in. And if you don't start to share, you're never going to be able to engage them. And the more you engage people who have a unique perspective and a, an interest in, in helping you achieve your vision, the more they're going to help you think creatively about delivering the mission. So 
those would be some tips. Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, and hopefully people who work in organizations, nonprofits, or even people who um, are participating more in mutual aid can kind of find ways to use this uh, wisdom in their everyday, which is super exciting. Um, so thank you again for dropping all of your tips and tricks um, and ideas. I think they're all really fascinating and super helpful. Um, but we're not done yet. We're going to transition to my favorite part of any podcast episode, which is the rapid fire round. Um, and these are just a standard list of questions that I ask all our guests uh, just to get to know a little bit more about their background and who they are. Um, totally low pressure. You have about 30 seconds or so to answer, but are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Awesome. So what's one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? We've gravitated toward using Monday for project management, even when we used to use much more advanced technical tools or even more basic tools like Trello. Because Monday has a lot of different interfaces for managing different types of workflows together and still allows you to do a lot of the more detailed analysis about productivity. But it's about as easy to use as any other tool out there. Works on mobile, works works on web. It's been excellent for us. Yeah, that's awesome. If you're in New York, I'm sure you've seen all of the Monday.com ads on the subway. <laughs> totally. Um, are there any tech tool or tech issues you're battling with right now? Yes, I would say integrations. Integrations are a huge priority for us and something that we as a system prioritize and we make it very easy for you to integrate Golden with other systems. But the other systems don't always make it easy for third parties to integrate with them. And I think, again, if all of us as social impact practitioners could impress upon our software suppliers that we want to be able to choose the tools that make most sense for us, whatever our situation is. I think that's a value that everybody should share. A lot of traditional firms are starting to evolve their philosophies there and, and begin, you know, accelerator programs or having fast tracks to be able to work with earlier stage innovative companies. And there's a lot of innovation going on now in the space. So it's a good time to think about integration. Yeah, a lot of our clients struggle with integrations as well. So I can I definitely hear you on that one. Can you talk about a mistake you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things now? Golden is my second social venture in technology for managing volunteer programs. The first one I did in 2006 in an era pre-mobile, really pre the pervasiveness of mobile. Mm -hmm. And mobile enables a lot of end-to-end -end understanding of what's happening. And we see that, you know, with Lyft or Uber or with Instacart, or whatever service you're gonna use, you have an understanding of where things stand. And building productivity software in an era before there was an understanding of the end-to-end -end activity attribution meant that your productivity software was actually just a place for people to manually enter information. And I think I may have started down the road of this idea a little too early because the technology wasn't up to speed with the vision. But at the same time, having that exposure at a relatively young age and understanding what it really takes to do change management or innovation in the context of a nonprofit helped us with fundamental assumptions about what we're doing now. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty good mistake if you ask me. Yeah. Uh, do you think NGOs can successfully go out of business? Yes, I think they can. And it's all about what you set out to do. There probably should be more consolidation in the space. There's a lot of 
organizations that do similar work and divide resources that really could and should be partners. So that's one way to go out of business, to kind of merge or join forces or figure out more strategic programs that leverage other people's resources so that you can be more focused with your own resources. And secondly, setting really clear goals about what you want to accomplish and recognizing when the work's been done and moving on to something that needs your effort even more instead of progressively chasing the long tail of, of maybe relatively smaller issues to fix. And if you're setting out for something very specific and you accomplish the goal, wonderful. Then focus your efforts to the next thing where people need your skills. Yeah, definitely. Let's also say you had a hot tub time machine that takes you back to the beginning of your work. What advice would you give yourself? That is a really big issue that we're interested in solving. And it's not the sort of thing that's going to happen overnight, even when we do have overnight successes, like we win an award or we, we work with an interesting partner on an interesting problem, or we're able to address a new market that other people haven't been able to address. I think those victories are very motivating. But the idea that we want to help improve quality of life for people, that we want to think at the system scale about removing friction and automating things, that's just a bigger challenge than many other challenges are. So having an eye for the big picture is essential. Mm. What's something you think you or your organization should stop doing? I think we need to think more intelligently about how we interact with our users. Mm. We have a tendency like many other entities have a tendency to go above and beyond and treat everything as though we have personal responsibility for it and we want everyone to have a perfect experience. But when you build any kind of organization, it's all about labor allocation, resource allocation. And in some ways, time and effort that we spend having a 24-7 US-based around-the-clock support team that walks through small issues and big issues with anybody, whether those are related to software or their program, is something we do because we want to help folks reach their potential. But our unique value proposition isn't just the fact that we offer a good service. It's the fact that we're innovating and delivering software nobody else has had before. And the more time we're able to focus on those competencies, the better experience all of our users are going to have. So I think we need to think a lot harder about all the ways that we communicate what we're doing for our stakeholders and improving our own processes in terms of where we spend our time and effort. I personally find myself answering support tickets every day at some point. And, you know, that point's usually off hours, as you can imagine. And sometimes I spend an hour on a support ticket or more investigating things and writing up a really personal response. But Maybe it'd be better if I got a little bit more sleep and focused on other aspects of the company. Yeah, sleep is sleep is usually a pretty good one to prioritize for sure. Um, let's also say you had a Harry Potter wand for the industry. What would it do? I would want everyone to play nicely with each other across entities, across technology firms, and to treat the end user or the end stakeholder with enough respect for them to have control over the experience they want, regardless of who's involved with that experience. What's your favorite question to ask an organization or board member? 
I just like to ask them where they're really trying to go. Mm-hmm. When we have a strategic conversation with them, we don't just want to know, you know, what have, what KPIs are they trying to hit or what pain points are they facing? But we really want to understand where they're trying to go because the first step of any partnership is an understanding what scope is reasonable and worthwhile to pursue together. You can't do everything all at once. Nobody has the bandwidth for that. And so that first step is really critical for understanding that you're going to solve immediate pains, but you're going to build directionally toward the vision. You don't want to go down the road of of doing something together that took a lot of time and effort, but it's total throwaway at the end of the project. You want to at least come away with some learnings or infrastructure that you can build on for the next wave of work. Awesome. And what's a piece of advice your parents gave you that you did or did not follow? Piece of advice that I got from my great-grandmother was to never do a small deal. She was a, I mean, the full quote is, don't do any small deals because it takes just as much time and effort and often money to do a small project as it does a really big one. It's really just about how you think through and, and execute. And it's, you know, it's something I try and remind myself all the time that, you know, what is really, if, if something is absorbing a lot of my, my attention or my capacity to produce death, is it really the biggest picture that I could be working on? And if it's not, then I'm spending way too much time on something that's not ultimately going to be in the best interest of others. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's good advice. <laughs> And then my last question, which is probably one of my favorites, is what advice would you give college grads looking to enter the social impact sector? I would tell them to start iterating on whatever they think is most important to them immediately. Mm -hmm. That the notion that you graduate school and then the perfect job opportunity is going to be sitting there for you and you're going to be able to excel to your full potential is a difficult set of statistics to face. I mean, you have to go through a lot of steps before you really hit a groove in your career. Instead, the value of being an entrepreneur is being able to identify opportunities and to address them. And those skills are totally transferable to whatever other opportunities you may find. As somebody who hires others, I value people who've really tried to approach a problem before. It's great that they have other experience, and sometimes that exper- that experience is required to be able to do a job. But I'm much more interested in hiring people who are problem solvers and who are people who say, I'll take a look at what everyone else is doing, but if the need is still unmet, I'm going to go out there and meet that need or figure out what it's going to take to meet that need. And usually that makes for somebody who's able to grow a department, change the way a product is delivered, change the way you work with partners. And those are the kinds of people we like to hire. Yeah, that's great advice and probably speaks to a lot of people having their quarter life crisis right now. <laughs> so I mean, I dropped out of college. Um, two years in, I started a, a social venture. We got some traction. I signed a piece of paper that said I wasn't going to school anymore. And then I had to tell my parents I dropped out of Stanford, which wasn't easy to do. Yeah. And fortunately they understood. But that was the best life experience I ever had. Understanding how to take a calculated risk, investing in yourself, going headfirst into things that look like they're way too hard for you to solve on your own. 
And it just makes you value. I ended up going back to school. It made me value the classes I took a lot more. It made me better in school. This so using there's no exact path. I mean, take a year off. If you want to keep learning more about what these to topics do, and others, back. head on over to wholewhale.com yeah, slash university awesome. to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to Greg ThomasMusic.org for his tunes that You can find us at goldenvolunteer.com or on Instagram at golden. just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought, click and subscribe, and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 